Welcome to the FinTV podcast series, where we tap into the collective expertise of the world's leading supply chain, manufacturing, and digital innovators. My name is Maria Villablanca, the co-founder and CEO of Future Insights Network, and I'll be your host. Join us every week to hear the opinions, lessons, and general guidelines from the industry's leading minds. FinTV, insights for today's digital leaders. Welcome to this episode of FinTV. Today, we're joined by an author and founder of SCM Globe, uh, Michael Hugos. Michael, who's joining us from the United States, thank you so much for, uh, for coming on to FinTV. My pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So, Michael, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself uh, and tell our, our, our members and our audience who you are. I am, as my wife once said, someone who is anxious to communicate my ideas to a wider audience. And after chewing her ear off for many years, she said, gee, why don't you write a book and see if you can talk to a wider audience. And um, sometimes books take off. Uh, who knows why they do? Um, I'm pretty smart, I think, but I also got lucky. And I, I wrote a book called Essentials of Supply Chain Management. And um, it was... I didn't even know an editor. I, I, I did, um, I wrote several chapters and sent it around. And then a big publisher, Wiley said, oh, gee, we like it, finish it, we'll publish it. And I was uh, completely blown away with the whole author thing, you know, all that. And uh, one thing led to another. At the time when I wrote it, I was the chief information officer of what was then about an $8 billion distribution organization. We were expanding from North America into Europe. I had come from being a practice director at a consulting firm. My whole career kind of zigzagged between corporate and consulting. I had built up some ideas and opinions. I have a lot of opinions. I'm very opinionated. I hope that some of them are even based on, <laughs> on reality. And I had some ideas about how to connect what was then, we are talking uh, basically the year 2000 through the year 2006, uh, that first big rush of e-commerce and all of that. And here I was working for, you know, a large distribution company. We distributed a humble line of products. It was um, janitorial and healthcare supplies as well. And we're not talking expensive pharmaceuticals. We're talking, you know, you know, disinfectant and stuff like that, mops, spoons, and buckets. And then we also distributed uh, food surface disposables, uh, mm -hmm. you know, paper cups, you know, napkins, little swizzle sticks and things like that. Well, we distributed a lot of them and we were busy, busy, busy. And supply chain management was something that was on everyone's mind and I had ideas about what to do. So, Yahoo. So, well, let, let's start there. I mean, how do you think supply chain as a function and as a, as a role, how has it changed in your time, you know? And, and I think let's go up until the pandemic because I think there's right, been right. even more change since then. Yeah, yeah. Now, I, I, when I, in the 90s, I was a practice director at a large consulting company here in the Chicago office. I live in downtown Chicago. And um, the term 
supply chain management had just kind of come into general use. I thought it was a pretty cool term, certainly sounded better than warehousing and truck driving. And it was something that we were calling on people a lot here in Chicago because Chicago, I would say, is probably the transportation hub for North America. And it, there's a lot of distribution and supply chain related activities here in Chicago. So when I got that in the 90s, the feedback was always supply chain is a cost center. Supply chain is a cost center. And what we want you to do is cut cost. And cutting costs is always a good thing. Um, but I started to get these notions that you could differentiate yourself as well. And there were starting to be companies that were offering that quick service, same day service, um, that type of thing began you know, as the century turned and we got into the early 2000s, that started to become a real expectation, even in the B2, I was not in the business to consumer section, like an Amazon maybe, we were in the B2B, business to business, uh, but even the business customers now weren't expecting the truck to come two days from now, they were expecting it, well, uh, how about this afternoon, Mike? <laughs> and those are the things that you started to realize could differentiate yourself, um, distribution, supply chain management generally is a thin margin business. This is not like, um, you know, if I was a banker, you know, this isn't finance. This isn't um, high tech uh, anything. Supply chain distribution is a time honored profession and it is low margin like groceries. You know, what does a grocery market make? You know, two to 4%, 4% if you're really, really lucky. 2% is more like the average and sometimes less. Same thing with distribution. So we were always in that position where what can we do to differentiate ourselves and lowering your price is of course what, what everyone tries to do. But at some point, if you're not making any money, you still won't make it up on volume. So what else can you do? And we started to do things that would wrap an otherwise commodity product with all sorts of value added services. And guess what? The value added services are those supply chain related things. How do you, you know, when do you want it delivered? Do you want it in a certain time slot? How do you want it labeled? How do you want it billed for? How do you, I mean, a hundred little tiny things, but when you wrap them all together and customize it for that particular customer, it is often worth a percentage point or two. And that's where our really? profit was. So mm -hmm. IT became, I mean, I have always thought that if you can impress salespeople, and I think sales is probably the hardest job in business. Uh, IT is where I've spent much of my time. IT is challenging. IT can, you know, drive you nuts at times, but hey, everything drives you nuts. And IT though always has a technical answer. If sales only had a technical answer, I have never found a technical answer for sales. And I have never found a business that could exist without sales either. <laughs> so yeah. things that I, I, so I decided how can we, me, me being, you know, I was the CIO and uh, they wanted me to make them look cool and do things that our big competitors were doing, but on, you know, a lot less money. And we figured out ways to do it by combining people and technology and um, work like a charm. So, so where do you think, I mean, we've talked a little bit about where supply chain was and you brought up the fact that supply chain was always seen as a cost center and reducing costs and so forth. Uh, 
you know, a lot of the people that I've been interviewing have been telling me that that's changing now with the pandemic. You know, it's, it's sort of a, it's brought supply chain front and center and B, you know, businesses are going to live or die by how well their supply chains function, which Mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily go well with cost saving, does it? You know, so, so what's, what's the answer here? Well, I think the answer is that we live in a world that is constantly changing. We are coming out of a world known as the 20th century, the industrial revolution and all that, which was a fine time. And it had a certain stability that is now lacking. And those of us that were born in the middle of the last century can still remember that, but it is no longer the case. So the problem then becomes, in most of my, most of my positions I reported, it was never clear if I was reporting to the CFO or the CEO, but in any case, I was reporting to someone who was watching the numbers very, very carefully. And um, resilience and risk management is like insurance. How much insurance do you need? And of course, you don't ever think you need that much insurance until you do, and then of course you can't get it. Mm-hmm. So, there's an ongoing conversation and I certainly had those conversations where what looks like uh, to a logistics expert, what looks like safety stock to an accountant would look like excess inventory. So how do you have that conversation? Well, especially with, uh, you know, just in time manufacturing and uh, uh, lean and so forth, you know, so what does the post-COVID world look like for a supply chain professional? Well, I think that just-in-time works well if it's a predictable environment, and we spent much of the last decade of the 20th century and certainly much of the first decade and a half, at least, of the 21st century doing lean, just-in-time. Um, I don't think that anyone really thought there would be something of the magnitude that we're going through right now. Uh, I would like to have been a fly on the wall to hear a CIO try to explain a scenario like that to a skeptical CEO slash CFO and thus ask for what? Another 50% increase in their budget. How long do you think that conversation would last? Probably about two and a half minutes, you know, mm. or less. If that. If yeah, that. If that. So now. Yeah, but now. Now, well, now the question is, you know, let's start with what's Lloyd's of London going to do to adjust their rates, mm-hmm. right? What are we all going to do as far as expectations for the future? Because that's what it comes down to. If we think this is a one-time thing, there's going to be tremendous pressure to get back to total efficiency to try to make up for lost profits. If we think this is going to be a continuing thing, then we need to talk about, all right, we don't just have one big supplier for all the face masks in the world, right? We might have to have, heaven forbid, 50 smaller suppliers who may be a wee bit less efficient, who would not give us this massive economies of scale. And so the, there's a couple of extra percentage points that you would have to add, add to the cost, et cetera. Um, you know, I live in Chicago. Are Americans prepared to give up cheap flat screen TVs. I put mm-hmm. that out to you. Yeah, that's <laughs> it's true. Fine to talk about, oh, redundancy and risk management and reshoring uh, our, our operations, but are Americans prepared to pay more for flat screen TVs? Yeah. 
we'll find out, won't we? And at the end of the day, um, there's two kinds of supply chains. I would say there's the not-for-profit, which would be humanitarian and military. And then there are the for-profit supply chains, which are the commercial supply chains. Obviously, most supply chains are for-profit. How will that work? Are we, will are we prepared to pay more for bread? These are simple questions. Because if we're not, I, as a logistics person, as an utterly pragmatic person, if we're not, if we want something, but we are not prepared to pay for it, I suddenly remember I have a dentist appointment. Yeah. AKA, I don't want to talk about it. Do you think that there's a level of, um, I mean, we can talk about supply chain and processes and so forth, but there's it, what you're saying is that there's some bigger conversations that need to be had here in terms yes. of uh, governments, in terms of even consumer expectation, in terms yes. of consumer behavior. Uh, economic models. Uh, there's, there's a wider conversation. I love what you said about just in time works well in a predictable environment. I think those two words, predictable environment, uh, were things that we took for granted in we the did. last century, you know, certainly in the last 50, 60 years, maybe since World War II, right? Yes. So, so yes. now we're entering an unpredictable environment. So, yes. what, what kind of professional? works in this or, or what kind of processes work in an unpredictable environment? I think that you actually need to have more people involved. And, and here's where, you know, I've been accused of being a controversy junkie. Uh, and I, I do admit to liking an interesting idea and talking about it while I think about it. So sometimes I, you know, anyway, here's, here's what I think right now. In an unpredictable world, we, are, we need more people involved, not fewer people. And people go, oh my God, what do you mean? Decision-making by committee is the worst thing in the world. And of course it is. But what if it's not decision-making by committee? What if it's decision-making by street smart professionals who have a reason to care and skin in the game? And I can tell a very cool little story about that. Yeah. Because what I find is that and here again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stake out some controversial territory. Of course, we need more technology. And yet, all this, all of this chatter about AI, I find to be disingenuous. Um, because you also will start to notice, if you pay attention, a little articles about, oh, all the AI algorithms have been thrown for a loop. They can't figure out what to do with this sudden unpredictable thing. They've been trained. I love it when the scientists get on and talk about their, their little AI like their child, which it is. I understand. I have my own little version of that too. And yet they go on about, oh, we've trained the little darling and now it's just so wicked smart. It knows everything in the world. Just go ahead and ask it. And all of a sudden something unpredictable happens and the AI AIs are completely out of whack. So they're relearning. Yeah, sure, they're relearning. But what about in the meantime? How about people? How about real intelligence? How about we put artificial intelligence in the service of real intelligence? And I don't mean PhDs and geniuses necessarily. Of course, PhDs are welcome. But how about street smart individuals who work in warehouses, who are purchasing agents, who are truck drivers, who know what the heck is going on because they're out there doing it. I think that's where we're gonna to have to go is we need 
online collaboration platforms where you can get not just a handful of experts at a headquarters operation telling everyone else what to do, but here's where this combination of technology and people, the pro appropriate use of AI, and I like AI to be seen but not heard. If you know where that saying comes from, that's what I mean. This is my servant. This is not a thing. This is not the, the character data from Starship well, Enterprise. And I want to dish up information when I need it, but otherwise to keep its opinions to itself. If I want to see its artwork that it did last night, I'll ask. Otherwise, don't show me. Well, let, let, me, let, me, let me put it to this way. So a lot of the people that we interact with are, um, you know, we're, we've been talking quite a lot pre-COVID about digital transformation. And I've had a lot of conversations about, first of all, what is the definition of digital transformation or digitization? Because it means different things little for vague, different people. You know, exactly. And then secondly, this, you know, very quietly, and I'm not going to name names, but a lot of comments behind closed doors about digital transformation, not really living up to the expectations that I yeah. had for it. So what do you think of the statement that I believe that some companies believed that digital transformation was going to be this magic bullet yeah. that would solve all of their woes. Yeah. What do you think of that? I think that that's human nature now, isn't it? If I only yes. had something that would solve my problems, but not cost me too much, well then, for heaven's sakes, I could be rich, right? Mm. And look, this nice consultant, which could have been me, by the way, is mm. offering me, well, it's, it's only several million dollars, but of course the ROI is apparently several billion. So why not and then you know after the snake oil salesman leaves town and i include myself in that i'm not saying caveat emptor we know what that means right caveat buyer beware yes. buyer beware buyer beware and um you know if you didn't know well then perhaps you should have done a little bit better investigation before you parted with your hard earned money distribution being a low margin business, supply chains generally running on very thin margins, you can quickly destroy a year or more's profit in an ill-conceived you know, IT technology venture uh, for some wistful hope, you know, some forlorn hope of a computer system that will be, you know, like the robot data in, in you know, in the Starship Enterprise, or, you know, more likely, if you remember the movie 2001, you know, Hal. Hal knew well, everything, except Hal kind of ran off the rails. Yeah, well, know? that was just going to say, hopefully it doesn't end, end up the same way. Well, um, I think that a lot of people are naive, and I, I am, and I know that I'm rambling here, and I'm going to cut myself off in a moment, but let me say this. If we haven't figured out by now that technology alone will not save us, I have to I have to roll my eyes and say what what have we been doing for the last 30 years then So technology is meant to enhance us it's meant to assist us I like your analogy about AI not knowing what to do in unpredictable situations we've had a lot of conversations around how do you predict the unpredictable well you're not going to predict no. the unpredictable with AI because you know, they can only work on data and they work on data that they have and a lot of the unpredictable is data we don't have so I like your con concept of talking to people that can that have skin in the game, people that have a reason to care, perhaps people that have been there, done that, seen a number of things. And that's one thing that humanity still can do. We can think laterally uh, and use previous um, 
matter, an experience that may be wholly irrelevant, but use previous experience to draw upon uh, in order to make decisions. So let's talk about technology within supply chain right now. Yeah. So uh, it, it's essential. You talk about the essentials of supply chain management, you can't run supply chain without technology now. So right. what, what, is there any technology that excites you uh, that's out there? Yes, there is. And, and, and let me say, we tend to think of uh, things that happen within in, in individual facilities. Like if I walk into a warehouse uh, and you look around, you look at the degree of automation. Are there robots moving things around? You know, how is the picking operation? Are there automatic lifts? Or just, you know, or are there people who, or what kind of a mix, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we always tend to forget that a supply chain is not a single facility. A single facility is part of a supply chain, but is not in itself a supply chain. And a supply chain is by definition, many facilities, many vehicles, many products that all interact in a complex adaptive network that is continuously changing according to the way it senses and responds its environment. And this is where I think some notion of digital transformation starts to make sense. And let me suggest something that is uh, deliberately controversial just to get you to go, oh, is that guy crazy or what? Um, games, I'm gonna throw the word games out there. Uh, I am a boomer. I was born in the middle of the last century. My generation hears that word and tends to say, yeah, silly time-wasting things that people do and that we, you know, put filters on our computers so they can't do it at work, but they do it anyway, of course. Um, other people might, and the kind of games I'm talking about are what are known as massively multiplayer online role-playing games, or MMOs. Uh, one right now that's very popular is Fortnite. Um, mm -hmm. Another one that is, you know, has been very popular for a while is called World of Warcraft. Mm -hmm. uh, Call of Duty. Call of Duty, I, pl I play that one. Uh, have you heard of EVE Online? No. EVE, -E, and it, it, it's not the biblical Eve. It's Eve, e, it, it's basically, it's a Star Wars theme. It has a business theme to it as well. And there is a massive stock market that is always going on in the background. And it's all about, you know, finding iron ore and asteroids and then mining the ore and bringing them back to factories and making spaceships and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I find I'm not a gamer. I don't quite have the time to do it. Maybe not the patience, but um, some of my friends are. And I find analogies there that I think will be what we start to use in the coming decade, maybe even in the coming few years, because what you see there in any of those games are thousands or hundreds of thousands of people online at the same time in, in, a, in a big World of Warcraft instance, there are going to be, I don't know what, 10, 20,000 people online at the same time interacting in this big three-dimensional space. Now, we can't turn the whole world into a you know, big three-dimensional space yet. But when you start to look at some of the things that Google is doing, you know, they're taking their street view, the little, the car with the little bubble that, you know, drives down the street. And now that what they're starting to do is make 3D models. So this is starting to become more and more powerful. It takes time. But when you get a lot of people online who are not just playing a game, but are watching a shipment go from here to there via truck, via ship, via rail, whatever it may be, 
and have skin in the game as far as we want to show up on time, we don't want any problems to happen, and who all can see what's going on. What I have seen is that when street smart people with skin in the game watch a situation in real time, they can respond more quickly, more effectively than any artificial intelligence. The artificial intelligence should be doing stuff like coming up with data displays. You know, the artificial intelligence should be, be doing the work of collecting a trillion gigabytes of data a second and then putting it into a data display, which is, by the way, not a heat map, not a line graph, not a bar chart or a pie chart, hallowed be those ancient representations of data, but instead it should be a moving three-dimensional environment. Why? Because our site is the greatest bandwidth. We humans have been working with the world in a moving three-dimensional way for a while now, and we're evolved to handle massive amounts of real-time data if you present it that way. And then add in some sound, and yo, I mean, we are happening. When you, when I talk to people, they, they show me their, their business intelligence stuff, and it's, you know, line graphs and bar charts, hallowed be their name. That's, I mean, that's a little bit better than chiseling into marble slabs, but not much better. And then they go, oh, but look at my heat map. And I go, right. What is that heat map saying? Well, and then, you know, 30 minutes later, after I've completely tuned out, see where I'm going is yeah. supply chains are a massive flow of real-time data. Mm -hmm. Artificial intelligence studying the past is fine, but it won't tell you about the future. And human beings adapt unexpected change really well. It's one of the things we've been kind of, if we're given good data, feed us, you know, treat us like a mushroom. You know what being treated like a mushroom means? Mm -hmm. Like have a, I have a feeling I know what you're going to oh, say. Keep, keep me in the dark and feed me BS. Yeah, treat yeah. me like a mushroom and I'm going to be pretty pathetic. But if you give me good data, relevant data, not, you know, like what did J-Lo say today, but relevant mm -hmm. data and then give us all a reason to work together we like that. We humans are social creatures. And a supply chain, I think in some ways, many ways, is a social game. And I don't mean game in a silly way. No, you don't, you don't mean that. What you, you mean, uh, I, I, I get what you're saying. So the future of supply chain is the perfect synergy of people and technology uh, using data to make better decisions. And would I, you... would say, I would say, displaying it in such a way. Um, when you look at the military, they are very focused on uh, usually using maps. Mm -hmm. and, and why? Why Why is that? Why don't they just display all that as columns of numbers and bar Because we're, visual, we're visual people. We're visual people. Right. And we can, we can, we can, you know, right. we can actually see that information in, in that way. Context context yeah. and they, they keep calling it situational awareness so if you show me a column of numbers unless you're an accountant maybe or you know an engineer the, the numbers aren't going to speak to me but if you show me the numbers in a context that makes sense and a map for a supply chain a supply chain happens in the world and a map is as close as you can get to the world without being in the world. So when I, again, when I see these, these BI installations and these dashboards with their lovely heat maps and their, et cetera, their archaic data, their archaic two-dimensional data displays. 
And, and okay, let's talk about the, the individual, the supply chain individual and the supply chain team, because, you know, you, you, you've been in supply chain since before it was even defined supply chain. You know, we not to age you. truck driving and logistics, ma'am. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Back yes. when it was truck driving and warehousing and logistics, you know? Yeah, right. Uh, so, so how has that role evolved in terms of the genetic makeup of that person, you know? So in, mm. perhaps back maybe in the 90s or even in the, uh, uh, let's talk about the last century. How yeah. tech savvy did they have to be versus how tech savvy do they need to be moving forward? No, they need to be a little bit more tech savvy now. Um, they didn't need to be that tech savvy before, but two things are happening, uh, on, on the, in the facility, facility level, uh, people are being replaced by robots and that will continue and that will accelerate this, 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 what we're going through right now is accelerating that. And mm -hmm. if you've ever walked through an Amazon regional warehouse, you should, you really should. Mm -hmm. uh, you have no idea. You have no idea until you do. Um, they're going to be increasingly automated and probably should. It's, it's not the most satisfying work in the world. Um, it's exhausting and there's a lot of repetitive, I've, repetitive, a lot work, of very repetitive yeah. stuff. And, and certainly I've, I've, I've seen warehouses evolve. I've seen them get larger. I've seen them get more automated. Uh, you still need people there. I, you know, I don't think you can have a lights out warehouse that just, you know, runs all by itself with the machines humming away in there doing whatever they're doing. But uh, facilities will become more automated. And, and so the need for low scale, you know, low wage workers moving boxes from one shelf to another is going to diminish because robots can do that. Um, but I think what's going to happen is now that people are going to start to learn how to supply chains are about cooperation. You know, uh, stock trading is about competition, probably mm -hmm. more than cooperation. It's about, I fool you. I buy, you know, I buy low and I sell high, but supply chains are definitely about cooperation. You can't really win. I mean, you may be a huge buyer and you've hammered me down to the last, you know, fraction of a percent and you're feeling pretty satisfied with yourself. And I say to myself, you know what? Screw it. I'm not making any money on this. I'll get to it when I get and when I get to it. And so, you know, you've hammered me down to the last penny, but I am now basically not giving you what you wanted. And so who's winning here? And I think that this whole issue of collaboration, cooperation is something we're going to explore. Capitalism is, tends to be somewhat of a, uh, you know, competitive me. game. Yeah, a me but, only. Yeah, we're going to have to figure out some way because, um, if you can't collaborate in a supply chain, and we saw this a lot with some of the large retailers, and we'll see it again, where they drive hard bargains for their suppliers and they're, and you know, the, and the, the, the salesman at the supplier will say, but boss, you know, it's a $10 million order. And it, but the CFO will say, yeah, boss, and we're making 0.005% profit on that. So the slightest thing that goes wrong and we begin losing money. Mm -hmm. And that's where we are right now. So with the unpredictability, there has to be more collaboration. We're going to have to pay more. And again, if we don't want to pay more, then don't talk to me. Don't talk yeah. to me. Well, well, that goes back to, again, business models and, and so forth, you know. So right. one of the things that, that I've been hearing a lot about as well is the opportunities arising from uh, COVID. I mean, obviously right. not to, yeah. not to uh, downplay in any way, shape or form the tragedies and, you know, sure. the deaths and, and just in general, the disruption, both economic and, and in terms of life. 
Um, but there are opportunities here to look at new business models, maybe look at sustainability, collaboration, uh, rethinking the supply chain in general, understanding supply, you know, maybe predicting demand to yeah. have to, to handle supply better. So what do you think are the opportunities for uh, the post COVID world? I really think that the supply chains are a foundation. Um, you can't have an economy without supply chains. Yeah. And we are going to, you know, as a world, um, as nations, we're divided uh, often. Certainly the UK and the US are very polarized. The politics have become um, somewhat like, you know, cheering for your team at a soccer match. I hope, yeah. that I hope we don't have a riot after the next game. But mm -hmm. I do think that you can find common cause with people in a humble thing known as supply chain and logistics because you either have the stuff or you don't. And, and so you don't have to invent facts and accuse each other of ignoring reality. You know, the stuff is either there or it's not. And if it's not, then the question is, who do you blame? And you always blame the supply chain people because who else would you blame? So when you start to work together on problems, and I, you know, short diversion, one of my books, well, my essentials book about the year was 2008. I received an email from a professor at a university in Tehran. I looked him up. He seemed to be really who he said he was. He said he was going to take my book and translate it into Farsi and there was nothing I could do about it. And he didn't owe me a dime, but he wanted my cooperation. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I went to the, I, I went to my, um, went to my publisher Wiley and I said, you know, Hey, K Pasa, what's happening with this? And they said, we have no treaties with Iran. They can do what they want. This isn't anything we can do anything about. Um, uh, so I, I thought about it and, um, I asked the, you know, I asked this, this professor, you know, how do you feel about that? You're essentially taking my intellectual property. And he said, well, we did some studies. It was a backhanded compliment. And he said, we, we looked at several of the books. We decided yours is the most practical. Yours hmm. is the clearest. Yours is the one we're going to translate. And then we're going to start using it as a textbook here in Iran. And we want your help, he said again. And I said, why should I help you? And he said, think about it. And I thought about it. And so what I said in the end was, if you let me write a forward to the Farsi edition and print it as I write it, then I'll help you. And so I did. And he said, remember, the mullahs have to approve everything we do. So, you know, please mm -hmm. don't, you know, <laughs> please don't, don't, don't say anything bad. <laughs> yeah. Don't say what anything I said, bad. so here's what I said. I said, we're all part of a global supply chain. Mm. And uh, among other things, here's Iran right in the middle of what was once known as the Silk Road. And there's this yeah. new Silk Road being built. And, you know, trade enriches all of the countries that are connected to these supply chains. And, you know, why can't we kind of talk about how we can all prosper instead of this endless competition? The Mullahs approved that. It was published. They sent me a couple of copies of the Farsi edition. This is the future. You know, mm -hmm. this is, the future is not that we're all going to retreat into our own little, you know, spheres of influence, et cetera, et cetera. The future is we're going to figure out how to continue to work as a world because there's another problem that we haven't perhaps addressed fully yet. 
and that's called global warming. You know, well, that, that's, that's what I talked about, new business models potentially that can address sustainability, yeah. you know, that can uh, talk about a supply chain that's perhaps more local. And, and sustainable supply chains, for one, we need to start talking about carbon footprint. This is not rocket mm. science. We've known yeah. this for about 30 years. And if you want to start talking about carbon footprint, you need to look very closely at jet airplanes. Yeah. They view carbon into the atmosphere at a rate that is astounding. And if you want to talk sustainable, you need to look at rail transportation. Rail and ocean are the two, you know, rail and ship are the two most sustainable, low carbon modes of transportation. They're also somewhat slower and they're also somewhat more rigid. Whereas truck and airplane are fast, but they are not sustainable. They spew carbon into the atmosphere at a, at a level that is unsustainable unless you just don't want to deal with it in case you, you well, well that, that that goes back to that goes back to what you were saying at the beginning you know this this whole unpredictable environment you know that, that this is we're getting closer and closer to the territory where this uh global warming and and uh, uh environmental issues are really becoming urgent so i think perhaps maybe the the uh the lesson here is we can't continue to take for granted this unpredictable you know these predictable environments they're gone you know, we now, we're now yeah. operating in an unpredictable environment. And so that's yes. going to call upon different types of skills. And if you want to look at the science, you know, the higher the carbon content in the atmosphere, the more unpredictable and volatile the weather. And any, any good truck driver going to tell you if it suddenly starts to have a, you know, if there's suddenly a massive snowstorm or a huge downpour or there's a flooding event, et cetera, et cetera, it has major impacts on supply chains. Supply chains are going to be already now the hurricane season looks like people are saying, oh, hurricane season in the States is going to start a month early or so. Hurricanes are always a massive. Well, uh, and that, that goes back that now to this whole AI thing. You know, AI can only work with the data it has that yes. is historical. You know, if we've never had hurricanes in, in May, uh, you know, because it's just not a thing that happens uh, or has ever happened, then AI is right. just going to tell you that it's not going to happen. Uh, right. Exactly. Now, now you, you can look at weather models and you can, and the weather models will start yeah. to say, now the model doesn't tell you exactly what's going to happen, but it shows you probabilities, you know, like the weather yeah. report doesn't say hundred percent, Mike, it's going to rain. It'll say 95%. Yeah. You know, I'm good. I'm good with that. But, that, but that's the, the, again, the synergy between using AI to, you know, interpret models and interpret data and, yes. uh, and then using the people with the reason to care and the skin in the game and maybe right. experience uh, so I think if anything, for me, this session with you has highlighted the need for that, that collaboration uh, with each other, as well as collaboration with technology to, to really get uh, better decision making. And that is going to be the takeaway. I, that is mm -hmm. what we're going to do. We are not, we think we are going to have some wicked smart AI machine named Hal, I guess. Solve everything, yeah. Solve all of our problems in some you know, nuclear powered bunker somewhere under Cheyenne Mountain and tell us all what to do. And that's a fool's game. Mm. That's a fool's game. And people that buy into that are kidding themselves or they just don't know any better. And whether it's a CEO or it's you know, someone right out of college, think twice before you do that. Um, we human beings have a, you know, give us good intelligence Give us a reason to care. And sometimes a reason to care is called a stake in the outcome. 
as in money. You know, mm. why do all the great entrepreneurs, why do all the great CEOs care? Well, because they have multi-million dollar packages, right? I don't need they a multi-million dollar package, yeah. but you know, give me a reason to care. Give me enough money to take my wife out to dinner if we have a good month, you know, and then let everyone get in the game. And it will be a game. And I don't mean that as a silly game. I mean, it's, the com it's a collective intelligence of street smart individuals with a stake in the outcome and a reason to care. There's something that the experts call the Delphi method. You know what the Delphi method no, is? No, I don't. No. It's, it's where you poll and typically used in the finance world and where you poll a group of experts about, you know, what's the Fed going to do? What are interest rates going to do? What's the stock market going to do? And then what you will tend to see is that they'll tend to converge around certain ideas. So you throw out the outliers and then ask them again. And after two or three iterations, they'll all tend to converge on something. And guess what? Often that's what happens. Why? Well, because they were street smart experts. Mm -hmm. And guess what? If you apply the same thing to almost any endeavor and certainly supply chains, it will work that way as well. And I, I am, I've been rambling on here. How much time do we have? I, I have one little no, this, story about- I, this, this, go ahead. I, this, and this is where, all right, so I had this idea. I yep. was the CIO. One of our largest customers uh, here in North America was a very well-known coffee company who at the time had about 4,500 stores. We delivered all of their cups, uh, the little swizzle sticks and the brown paper napkins and all of that stuff. Uh, and for once, the cup guy was mission critical because if they ever ran out of paper cups, they would have to close the store. And it's a public traded company and you could tell that they make about 22% gross margin on a cup of coffee. And so basically they were always on us to lower the price of our cups, which, and we were just the distributors. It was, you know, a solo cup made the cups. We just delivered them, warehoused them and delivered them. They didn't have warehouses. They had all the little stores and mm -hmm. our trucks were buzzing back and forth every day, at least every other day, all over the country. Um, so a lot of work. They're very demanding as they had a right to be. And yet at the same time, every holiday, the red cup season, they would call it, would suddenly create chaos for us where everybody else was having holiday cheer and making money finally, we would be losing money. Why? Well, it's because they had a group of experts at their headquarters with some wicked cool technology. And there they were with their atomic powered AI machines, collecting all the data, looking at everything, and then picking up the phone and, or writing emails and telling us what to do. We were being treated like mushrooms. They were the geniuses. And yet it would never work. And as the season progressed, it would, you know, the season would start in November and you'd try to use up all the cups because next year, a different theme, you couldn't use last year's cups. So you'd have to write off the cups, donate them to charity. Our problem now was we were negotiating a new three-year contract and suddenly they throw this wrench in the works and they say, here it is like, you know, 90 days before the beginning of the holiday season oh, by the way, we want you to tell us how you are going to cut excess holiday inventory by 50%, which we have the right to give back to them and they have to pay us for, right? Cut that by 50%, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, you know, have a nice day. And here, we, this was an important contract. The VP of sales and I go out there and they basically just let us know that unless we came up with an answer there were other people who could sell them cups for a whole lot less and we didn't want to compete on price. All right. So we went back, we thought about it and here's what we did. 
we let everyone see what was going on. Instead of just a few geniuses at headquarters, not everybody, but we let all the area managers at the coffee company, we let all of the, our own warehouse managers, everyone who had a need to know, and what did we use to display it? Well, I only had 90 days to get going and I only, I didn't have a lot of money. And the CFO said, number one, we need that contract. Number two, do not spend a lot of money. So what did I do? I used, you know, that age old marvelous invention called the spreadsheet. And, you know, you can get 64,000 rows in a spreadsheet if you want to, but you can make sense out of it by putting tabs along the bottom. And yeah. it's not entirely crazy. And you can make some line graphs and bar charts, et cetera, which are a good start, better than nothing. And so every night we just simply refreshed the data. Everyone who had a password could log on and look at it. Everyone would immediately check their own data because it's their own data. They want to make sure they're looking good. And then we would have these conference calls where we'd talk about what was going on. In the past, the conference calls were basically a blame game. And it was basically a way of saying, oh, I did my job. You screwed up. What's the matter with you? And then we always would wonder how come the guys at headquarters could never make the call until three days before we ran out of cups in say Atlanta, they must've seen that trend going on. You know why they would never make the call and why little groups of experts don't make good calls all the time. You know why they didn't want to make that call was because everyone knew who they were. And if they called it wrong, they would be called out and blamed. So they waited until it was so obvious that they couldn't be blamed but we would then suddenly have to air freight paper cups instead of yeah. putting on a train or even a truck, air freight paper cups. What happens when you air freight paper cups? You lose big money. So what if instead everyone could see, oh gee, and all we did was a rolling average, rolling two week average, you know, don't have to predict the future too far out, rolling average. And then sometimes a person would say, which no AI would ever know, oh, by the way, next Friday, we're gonna run a, a sudden, you know, pro, promo, and we're going we're gonna to be pushing this drink, so make sure we have a lot of, of those cups. No AI mm -hmm. would ever do that, but uh, people say that. Okay, we change our little equations there, run them again, and then people, yep, it looks like we need to move cups from New York to Atlanta, and we ought to do it right now. And everyone had a reason to care. Everyone had a stake in the outcome, and we would do it, and guess what? It would work out really well. And it, as the season progressed, we, we got the contract, and as seasons, as the years went by, it turned into, and I, I'll leave it at this. I sound corny and I know I sound corny. It turned into fun. Fun. We would all log on. We would all look at the numbers. We'd start talking about stuff. If someone wanted to change an equation, it's a little macro on a spreadsheet. So we'd change it, run the numbers again. And people go, yep, yep. I think we need to do that. We, in the very first year, by their admission, we cut are in, we, we cut inventory more like 60%, not 50%. We saved them by their own estimates in the neighborhood of $400,000. Mm -hmm. And we also said, and therefore don't beat us up on the last 2% on the paper cups. Aren't they worth it? Mm -hmm. That was, and, and so those, that idea I have, when I talk about collaboration, I'm, and when I talk about using elements from massively multiplayer online games as a way of representing enormous real-time data flows in a moving three-dimensional environment, which is a supply chain, that is where we need to go. And those that believe that atomic-powered AIs in a bunker under Cheyenne Mountain, I, I would gladly compete with them any day of the week please. 
people with the you know with appropriate information and, and good motivation and training will run rings around any any of this high tech machines alone will save us solution. And I would add I would add if the best of both worlds would be the you know the perfect working of both of those things you know the AI powering people AI yeah. powering people. Yeah. AI does great when it comes to I mean and I won't go into it. AI telling me what to do, like, you know, Mike, I suggest that you have a ham sandwich today. No, thank you. Get lost. But AI taking a zillion gigabytes of data and discerning a pattern in the data and saying, sir, please call me, sir. As long as you're a computer, I prefer you to call me, sir. Sir, we have found an interesting pattern in the data. That's useful. But don't mm -hmm. tell me what to have for lunch today. On that note, on that note, Mike, thank you so much for joining us. You've been a fantastic guest. And more importantly, you've helped us, you've helped us see how we can use technology to, to better enhance the role of the supply chain in, in the future. Uh, so thank you so much for joining us. For those of you watching, uh, you can catch our next episode on our website. So thank you very much.